Hello everyone, I am Marcibel and this is the Marcibel Podcast. and welcome to another episode of the More Civil Podcast. Today we'll be talking about brain drain and how it is related to the Nigerian economy. And according to the WHO, brain drain is defined as the movement of health personnel in search of the better standard of living and life quality, the higher salaries, access to advanced technology, and more stable political conditions. 90% of all migrating physicians were moving to just five countries, Australia, Canada, Germany, United Kingdom, and the U.S., with the U.S. and the United Kingdom remaining top destinations for Nigerians to date. A report on the Immigration Doctor Survey in Nigeria released last year shows that 8 out of 10 medical doctors representing 88% of medical doctors in Nigeria are currently seeking opportunities abroad. This survey was conducted by the NOI polls in collaboration with the Nigeria Health Watch, and they revealed that Nigeria had 5,000 doctors registered, with only about 35,000 practicing currently. Consequently, the report said that many doctors are registered to write foreign medical examinations, such as PLAB for the UK, about 30% of those people there, USMLE for the US, about 30%, and MCC for Canada, 15%, AMC for Australia, 15%, and DHA for Dubai, among others. Today I have with me someone that we will refer to as Dr. Tom because of the seriousness and sensitivity of this issue. So I wouldn't do a, a good introduction of them, but just a bit of a context. They are a specialist and they've worked in, in a tertiary institution in Nigeria for a while. He just recently moved here from Nigeria with his family where he's undergoing residency in a specialized field. So join me in welcoming Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom, thanks for being part of our program today. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So um, I know we've talked before now, and one of the things I really enjoyed about our conversation is just how so much you have talked about regarding this issue. So let's just get this started. What would you say was the deciding factor for you to you know, leave everything behind? You've had about more than 10 years of practice, correct? Uh, well, yeah, I had about um, six years of residency, and then I worked for about three years after residency. Oh, wow. So that's about almost 10 years, wow. like nine years. Wow, wow. So what would you say was the deciding factor for you to leave all of that behind and start a fresh year in the U.S.? Um, well, it's, I think it's multifactorial for me. Uh, by the time I was doing my residency, I had opportunities to travel out of the country, but I felt, hey, this country is great. I think we can try and make things work here. I could learn as much as I wanted to learn, and um, I could add value to my people. Uh, but as I passed through the residency program, and uh, uh, which was laden with a lot of strikes, um, we during our training were distracted a lot of times by the fact that sometimes salaries were just not coming at the right time. Um, you you don't have all the necessary equipment to try to work smoothly. Mm -hmm. I've had the opportunity to go for international conferences and compare notes with my colleagues in um, in different parts of the world and as well as even talk to some of my friends and colleagues that left the country immediately after um, we finished the undergraduates um, medicine undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, comparing the two, I just kept feeling like um, there could be 
I might have missed something. I might have missed some significant um, exposure in training, exposure in even um, providing optimal care. Um, so I got I got more and more curious. And um, and as the opportunities came, I decided to do the medical uh, the U.S. medical licensing exam. Um, I and then I got a job here, and in the process, I realized that it was a good decision for me because it has brought me to another level of exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition, I see the difference between some things that we, I know that. I read in books and I hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. And whenever it's time to provide that form of treatment or that form of investigation, I tell the patient back home in Nigeria that, hey, this is what we should be, ideally we should be doing for you. But right now, due to the unavailable resources, we cannot provide oh, that for you. Wow. So I that sort of hurt me a lot whenever I try to help solve patients' problems because as physicians, that's what we're about. We see problems, health problems, I will try and solve them. Yeah. Uh, we also do not, in some cases, we don't get to the final diagnosis based on the fact that we don't have that available resource. In a way, yes, timing your growth as a physician as well because you can apply those techniques to patients. Yes, definitely. Yeah, you're right. And there are even some form of treatment that by giving that treatment, you even confirm the diagnosis. Oh, I see. You know, and uh, so at the end of the day, you get sort of get hung based on your theory and you and you keep managing the patient as as a probable diagnosis. Oh, wow. You know? So, and then of course, there are some patients that come to me and um, they tell me, hey, this is what my doctor here abroad said. But I just sometimes used to just think that, okay, is this what they said? How, what, are, what are the things that they are exposed to that is different from what I'm exposed to? So I just, the summary is that I got curious oh, and wow. I wanted to see what was happening in the Western world. Thank you for that, you know, um, explanation. I had two questions as a sort of a follow-up from what you just, just said. So I know you do have experience in both the private and the public sector. Now, some of those challenges you talked about, for example, infrastructure. Um, from someone that used to be part of those two systems, would you say it's also as equally frustrating if you were in the private sector versus in the public sector, given your worth of experience in those two sectors? Um, I would say mm, yes and no. Okay. Okay, um, no, in the sense that the private sector, to me, appears a bit more organized and you could get things done much faster, okay? No, in the sense that it's in several practices, you may not be able to get all that you want in one building or in one campus. So a patient, for example, you could see a patient in a hospital and the hospital doesn't have an MRI. So you have to send the patient to a diagnostic facility outside of the facility. outside of the hospital. Go and get an MRI and then come back. So imagine a patient with, a, let's say, an acute emergency, let's say, an acute stroke, and you need to have an urgent brain CT scan yeah. to know if he has a bleed or not. You know, the fact that the patient comes to your hospital and then you have to send the patient out for a few more hours. In back into the ambulance, there is a lot of things. Traffic, you know, and you there are some patients that go up to three hours to go and get the investigation done, a simple CT or MRI, and then they come back, you know. Um, so 
those kind of things could cause delay in, in instituting full care. Yeah. And some of them, you know, and, I mean, so there are some hospitals that have been able to upgrade. They have so much more facilities, but it's unlike a lot of places I've been to here, you would like in a good facility, you get a lot, virtually everything. No, 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 no. You know, and um, you, you reduce cost, reduce patient time, patient time yeah. and you try, you'll be able to provide optimal care just by having everything. Even integration, like for example, I know having used both healthcare systems in Nigeria, you have to bring yourself yourself. But here, your lab could send the results to your doctor, and then you don't have to even be messenger as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So wow, those are clearly some um, some frustrations between those two systems. Another thing you talked about that kind of got me curious was the ability to work on a probable diagnosis. I know here in the US, you have to have at least a rationale for sending a patient, for example, to go do an MRI. So if I if I might say that in Nigeria, you just had to go with a hunch to, for example, treat a patient. Think about medical errors and also just a lot of um, factors that might make that really sound like, are they really, do they really know what they're doing? I mean, how what do you say to that? Okay, well, I, would, I have a few comments about that. Uh, first of all, um, one of the things I still praise our Nigeria for, or at least where we train from, depending on the institution you trained and how the type of trainers you had, we rely a lot on our very good history and examination. Uh, Now, that clinical diagnosis remains an invaluable resource. And in fact, it has even helped me here to be able to reason out better than... um, than a good number of other colleagues here because there seems to be a lower threshold for quickly getting the test done here. Without being a patient. So, and that is a valuable resource because you could actually save a patient, even here, a lot of money by being able to take a a good history, examine, and tailor your investigations according to what you really, um, what, what you, I mean, aimed at, Getting your diagnosis. As opposed to telling them to go run tests. Just run the ten tests. But the litigation system here might also be responsible for doctors wanting to do all the tests. Oh yes, I'm I'm learning that right now. <laughs> the litigation system, unfortunately, that is the the flaw in this system. Yeah. The based on the fear of litigation, as I've heard, you would have to spend. They would make you do a lot of unnecessary, yeah. a lot more tests, which. Sometimes may be unnecessary, but a good number of tests, an extra test that gets that helps to exclude a diagnosis yeah. or include one would at least be helpful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when, but from where from back home, we knowing that you you have to conserve the the resources of the patient. You always have to think about patient resources. You would you have a strong reason to do a lot of tests. Oh. Not just about the resources, about the logistics of even sending the patient for some oh, of those tests. You know? yeah. And those those things actually help uh, us back home to be more um, focused, more efficient. Yeah, that's it. And when, when in, regard, in regards to health economics, that is actually better. However, uh, if you now think of the other side, yeah. that the patient, you've seen a patient and he needs a lot of investigations yeah. and um, you ha- you also have to consider, can this patient afford it? Yeah. Many times the patient will not be able Probably to afford not. it. Uh, even if he can, he may not see the value or he may think there has to be, the, the, the health 
seeking behavior has also been considered. Yeah. Uh, uh, people in Nigeria are also more concerned about, hey, come and solve my problem. Yeah. We are contesting with other healthcare professionals, in quote, including the traditional ones, the traditional ones the, and the religious institutions as well. Yes, and those, a good number of them would, uh, they would see you and immediately tell you your problem. <laughs> so when you superimpose that expectation right. on, on a medical practi- practitioner, yeah. it puts more pressure on you. Yeah. But definitely, things I used to have to explain to them is we need to get a logical diagnosis. Yeah. And that involves history-taking, examination, and with or without tests. Okay? Um, tests to rule in or to rule out. Yeah. So we try to be a bit more... Um, um, more economical with our tests yeah. back home. Um, but the other thing we have to, the, the other reason, why, the main reason why we have to be economical is finances and just bare availability of those tests. Yes. Some of them have to be done outside the country. So you take a blood, you make a certain, you request for a certain test and some of those big, it has to, it could only be done in some big diagnostic centers. Mm-hmm. And then those ones will have to send it to their affiliates here or South Africa. Tests can take up to 10 days, 2 weeks, or even more, you know. And you don't know what could have happened to all the pre-analytic variables that could even alter the test Test. between that time and when you get the test done. done. So pre- and post-analytic variables could even affect that test, you know. So... That's um, for acute conditions, like you mean. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, so, again, um, getting tests done promptly, you uh, here, I'm getting exposed just to the fact that you can order a test and within 20, 30 minutes, have it, uh, have it done. Um, while there are some facilities back home that are beginning to try to meet up to that standard, many facilities still would, there will still be a lot of delay, either when, when to catch up. Yeah, you know, and the, particularly the teaching hospitals, they seem to, the government hospitals have that issue, you know. And that brings me to say that anything, this is my personal opinion, that government involvement in Anytime government has to provide some certain service, it's highly likely to fail. Government needs to try to step back, back, highly take the role of regulation, and let let people run it. Policy themselves. Yes, government-owned major institutions should be should be let out, privatized, or at least let government have minimal involvement. Let it be run privately, and let government pay, uh, uh, do whatever it needs to do. But be at the back. At the back, same. Okay. Then, again, I'm not sure if I'm diverting, but it's taking me to, um, I mean, my field, the healthcare financing back in Nigeria. Um, The insurance coverage still remains quite low. Um, That's for the NHIS, right? Yes, NHIS is quite low. Even general insurance coverage is low, although private insurance is beginning to increase. Um, health from the insurance level to even the end of end user provision, like the hospitals providing service. I'm still one of the people that believe that the government should have minimal involvement in that. that. Simply because anything the government does really never gets productive. People are more lavish 
the um, corruption, well. corruption but if you run something as a private institution, you have a stake in it. You have a stake in it. Government business is nobody's business, but if it's your no business, business, you will run it well. I think borrowing a model from the US, yeah. if, if the private sectors, if government could allow the private to provide this service, and the government should try to work on funding the vulnerable groups, maybe on the fives and the over 65, yeah. you know, similar to Medicare, the Medicaid, 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 yeah. Medicaid, people with disability. Let government be able to pay for service to private institutions to provide those services, to provide those services so that the private um, institutions will have better incentives to up their game. Yeah. If government decides that they will give some form of um, aid, grants to private institutions for a certain level of excellence in provision it's of me, I know that. services. And it will drive up competition as well. And yes. It can make the economy or the marketplace really grow very well. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. So. Oh, thank you for that. I do have a, a comment and that will also drive the next question I would like to ask you. So here's the paradox of the brain drain compared to the U.S. system where people have to pay through their noses and are often adult with normal student loans. Medical training in Nigeria is highly subsidized because government has made it inexpensive through funding of teaching hospitals. But yet you find Nigerian doctors trained with public funds being taken to other countries. What do you have to say to that? Uh, well, uh, that's a very long topic. Um, the thing is that the government pays a lot in subsidizing healthcare indirectly. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's put it this way. Okay. Um, if you want to go to a medical school in Nigeria, yeah. you do your jam, you pass, you enter, um, you get admitted for medicine. You pay school fees. When initially the school fees was much lower, but over time it's been increasing. You pay for accommodation, you pay for a, a lot more. Now, with the increment of school fees, over time, government has been reducing the funding for private allocated. Uh, for, yeah allocated to this institution, and this institution have to look for other in- ways to get to make up for that deficit. To make up for the deficit, and all this is also what makes it even more crippling is the uh, things like epileptic power supply. Oh, yeah. You know, in in the institutions, which will make them have to dedicate more resources to buying generators for buying um, the fuel for the generators, generator repair. Some of these things cannot you can not to quantify. It's actually a lot. Yeah. So all these things. So when you say that well, government is funding well to an extent, maybe the government is paying the institutions some degree of stipend, but people still pay their own their dues. Yeah. They pay either directly or indirectly. If they don't, their quality also re- reduces. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard about the fact that one um, university, uh, one major university uh, lost its dental accreditation recently. That, yeah. You know, oh, why? Degraded, uh, infrastructure that degraded over years. The last time those dental chairs were in place was a long time ago. There, I know there was a time that the government tried to do some re- um, renovation, so renovation. Yeah. Um, again we hear, we hear a lot of corruption associated stories with it yeah. so again you think government funds and then at the end it's, it's, still, it's still filtered away so many people do not feel like the government is helping them they, see that. they pay as they pay a lot they, they, they struggle through data and medical school they learn in harsh conditions 
a lot of things are learnt in theory. Uh, the the at the end of the day, they manage to graduate and they get disillusioned and they are like, this is not how I want to practice medicine, and that makes them want to go out. Now, if the quality is improved and there are strong incentives to want to to make the healthcare professional stay, including a good working environment, a, including a decent um, environment, infrastructure-wise, um, training condition is uh, adequate. Yeah, you have enough incentive to train. Yeah. You are not going to be frustrated. You are not going to be wondering when you are going to be paid. And then people have something in future to see, to, to look forward to. Um, a lot of people that have finished their residence and become attending, they have, like, the people coming behind them are not seeing much to look up to, you know? So when you finish, you want to make sure, okay, I provide this service in a good environment. And it brings me to part of the Hippocratic Code that says that, you know, as much as you pledge to help your patient, to do the best for the interest of your patient, it says, be it unto me to to enjoy life, Mm. you know, while I practice this. The first time I'm hearing about that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's a certain version that tried to take it from the uh, direct Hippocratic Code. I think the UK version that I read in the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine, I think 2010 edition, it says, the last paragraph, you know, I, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but the spirit of it is that be it unto me to enjoy life, you know, while you practice this um, art, you know, in um, with dignity and respect, you know. Yeah. I know a lot of doctors are leaving the country because they feel like their dignity as as physicians is just being eroded. You see, I, I was around during a couple of those these strikes, yeah. Um, and knowing that, if, I mean, those strikes come because you, of the, in quotes, feud between the doctors and the government that yes. pays their salary. Yes. And when you go and take a deep look at the reasons, you realize that these reasons are very valid. They're very valid. They are, but they would have tried to engage with government officials for up to one and a half years, and then the government officials keep delaying sometimes they won't show up for meetings and then when it's almost uh, time for the deadline for the strike government officials start showing up and then they start making it look as if they are trying to meet with these people for meanwhile they haven't done they've not done any due diligence and then they when if a strike starts they spin it the story against the this, doctors, the doctors and make them look like they are greedy people, incompetent. looking for incompetent people, looking for private practice, try, you know. And of course, if you follow the trend in many states, there are a good number of um, states that the doctors were not paid their salaries for six months, one year, oh. you know, and you're expected to keep providing services. I know a couple of colleagues, which I can't mention their names, that after training for years, even went abroad, got extra training, decided to settle in some inner states in Nigeria, and went to pay for eight months by the government. Husband working for government, wife working for government, you don't get paid your salary. You have to pay for the school. School fees. Your your own quality of life as well. Housing and all that. Exactly. So nobody told... uh, Relocated, you know, 
And that is just one out of the many reasons. The many reasons. So that's a huge chunk, though. Oh yeah. So it's in the past. It just used to be just medical officers that finished their their medical school and uh, want to go abroad. We're having more people that finish training and in, in Nigeria consultants, consultants, senior registers. You no, know, and even I even learned. I, I'm not sure how valid this information was, but I know that a year or two, the number of consultants that were applying to the Medical and Dental Council for one form of document or the other to leave... Letter uh, of good standing or something like that. Letter of good standing. The number was in their hundreds. And among the doctors, if you, I, I don't have the uh, statistics off head right now, but the number of consultants are very few. Yeah, it's a very tough. They're very few. Yeah. I, I know um, in cardiology, they're in hundreds. In rheumatology, less than 50. In neurology, less than 100. You know? The whole sum of that, a huge chunk. So imagine of when you had all the specialists, maybe they'll be less than 5,000 yeah. or so. And then you have hundreds looking for their way out. You know? And these are the people, the younger, you know, trainee doctors are looking forward to like the future of medical practice in Nigeria. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's. It's it's a sad it's a sad situation and I think a lot of people are oblivious to it. Um, a lot of uh, the elite are oblivious to it. I'm not surprised because the average elite um, they don't use the facilities. They don't use the facilities here. They go abroad, including up to the highest office of president. Office. FYI. Yeah. They so imagine if my president will want to. For an ear infection, if we were to go by what was said. So for ear infection or whatever mm-hmm. thing that he has, I mean, again, leadership is by example. example. I heard of the former leader of the Egypt or so. He refused to be treated outside his own country. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's where he died. He said he would. I mean, how does it portray? We have a leadership crisis, yeah. not just in the health sector. This is just the manifestation. It's in health, it's in education, education. it's everywhere. Yeah. And it brings me to um, your introduction when you mentioned brain drain about health personnel. Yes. I think it's not just about health personnel. Brain drain refers to virtually every... Yeah, but I think the context in which it was coined was for health. Would you say that for IT personnel? Every brain. I have had to treat a a lot of even well... Nigerians that I perceive are doing well um, in different private hospitals and getting to talk to them more. A good number of them are like men. They need a a plan B, you know, well-educated, they're living in good places, living in good places in Nigeria. An affluent lifestyle. Affluent, at least relatively affluent. And imagine if everybody's thinking like that. They People are just irritated, they're frustrated, and, um, and particularly people are educated. Yeah. They're thinking in a visionary manner. Is this how I'm going to do in the next 10 years? What about my children? Is it the environment that I want them to grow up in? You know, so those things influence your decision to say, oh, hey, I want to, I want to get out. Again, just going back to leadership, I, I, I was looking at, I think last year or two years ago, looking at the budget um, for health sector. I learned that about 3.5 or a little over 3.5 or so, I'm not sure about the figures, billionaire yeah. was allocated to one clinic, Asurok Clinic. Just one clinic? Yeah. What's the percentage of that? Wait, wait, wait. That's not even the big story here. About that same amount, maybe 3.5 or 3.7 billion, I'm not sure about the yeah. little over 3 billion, yeah. was allocated to all these other 16 tertiary hospitals in Nigeria. That's such a huge, so, disproportionate gap. 
Asso Rock Hospital got 3.5 billion. Asso Rock Clinic. And yet, our um, leaders could not use that place. They started to travel around. Now, I had to do a, a rough analysis of what I could do with 3.5 billion. <laughs> I start to be corrected, but I analyzed it to people that, that would dare to listen. Yeah. That I could use that 3.5 billion to to buy the land, erect at least a 50-bed hospital, wow. equip it, and Same start art, modern the, facilities. Well, yes, <laughs> at least with at least an uh, MRI machine, maybe. And then a CT and MRI. Oh wow, that's right. The MRI, uh, put air conditions, put good equipment, including computer, buy a generator. I did the analysis and. I was going to get about 200 million naira left. left. And I was going to pay all the medical, uh, the healthcare facilities, at least doctors. I put, I just paid doctors uh, like 1 million. I gave them 1 million salary. Yeah. Um, I think I was going to employ there at least 50 doctors and 50 nurses wow. at about 1 million and 500,000. For a whole year? No, for like three years. For three years. Wow. And I was going to get changed. Back. You know? So, I mean, there's a lot of waste. And there's a, you, there's a lack of leadership. And I proposed it to people that would choose to listen. That if there's a policy today where government officials, if you choose to vie for office, you must not patronize you must not go abroad for treatment. Yeah. Oh, I will take that seriously. Yeah. Your kids cannot go abroad Your for education. Your kids must not go abroad for education or treatment. If you work with the state government... You decide your salary. Yes. And even not just that. If you... I mean, now, for health, if you work with the state government, you will not... If you fall sick, you can only attend states. You can only be taken to a state government facility. Yeah. Um, if you're working with the federal... You cannot, the, your highest level of medical facility will be a federal government. Sure. Yeah. And, it, if it, and if it's strictly enforced, yeah. you realize that It'll people, out of a sense of selfishness, each leader's selfishness, is going to make sure that if he's going to fall sick and if he's going to be admitted to, let's say, general hospital, if his primary care provider is general hospital, and if he's fall sick, he he would be stabilized in a local hospital and immediately transferred to that general hospital. He's going to do everything to make sure that that place is well-equipped, well-staffed, and the environment is comfortable for him and his family to to be seen. Wow. Wait, a little example from the when one of these top government um, Official. uh, officials was put in prison, um, in Kirikiri prison yeah. some years ago. I heard that she renovated the toilets, uh, you know, and everything in the prison was renovated because it was there. So if you can take that as a key. Convert our selfishness to something else. Convert, just let this government official have a sense of selfishness. And ownership as well. You know, but well, as long as a government official knows that his child, his children, him as well, could always seek Alternates. alternate health care in yeah. other places, yeah. then they would, they, their motivation would be reduced, you know? So that's just the summary. I have more to say about that, but yeah. I think that's just the summary. That's so many stimulus examples you gave. I think we can say that the way we run the healthcare industry in Nigeria is just but a snapshot of how the country as a whole has been run. Exactly. And unless we demand more 
actions and see how even ourselves, the end users, whether you're um, affiliated with politics or just a normal citizen, like holding ourselves accountable and taking that responsibility, like an all-hands-on-deck approach in fixing the economy. This concludes the first part of my interview with Dr. Tom. In this episode, we talked about brain drain, we defined what the issue was, and the impact it had on the Nigerian healthcare industry and the overall economy. In the concluding episode, which will be the very next episode, we'll provide some tips as to the solutions that we can implement at trying to fix the problem. Don't forget to tune in. This is Mosibo, and thank you for listening. Thank you.